We thank you for visiting Christian Bible Temple and pray the following message speaks to your heart. Thank you. You may be seated. to the book of Hebrews chapter 12 we are at verse 14 here we have from here to the end of the chapter we have an exhortation to follow the goal of our race race meaning running right what is the goal of any race to reach the finish line Amen? That's what they strive for. So we must remember that we all live and run by grace. We are saved by grace, but we also live by grace every day. We see, first of all, the goal itself in verse 14. Pursue peace, it says, with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Every race has a goal to reach, as we said. And as we run this Christian race, the goal is to pursue peace with all people. I know that's very difficult at times, but the Lord, who is the Prince of Peace, has given us peace. Okay? Peace is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. People try to make peace on the outside without, without having peace on the inside. You can't have peace on the outside if you don't have peace inside. Amen? Always remember that. So before you are at peace with others, you have to be at peace with God. And the only way you can be at peace with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it says, justify therefore by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Prince of Peace. I trust everybody has received a copy of the outline. So please open to your outlines and don't stop looking at me. I know I'm handsome, but you don't have to be so enthralled with me. Look at the outlines and follow because this is a very uh, lengthy portion of Scripture and I don't want you to be lost. And I don't want you daydreaming either. <clears throat> we have to make an eager pursuit to live in peace with all people as much as it is possible. The Apostle Paul gave us the same exhortation in Romans 12, 18. Live peaceably to your according to your, uh, as much as lies in you, be at peace with all people. Now, this is a lesson the whole world needs, of course, but especially believers because they follow, we follow, the Prince of Peace. We must also eagerly pursue holiness before the Lord. The Lord said, be ye holy, for I am holy. Holy meaning what? Pure, and it means separated. Without sanctification, without holiness, which is another word for sanctification, no one, he says, will see the Lord. The Lord said something similar in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, are our hearts pure by nature? No. The, apostle, the uh, prophet Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked. So how do we reconcile that? It is not our righteousness 
It is not our self-righteousness. It is His righteousness. Okay? We have been taught in this book of Hebrews that there are two types of sanctification. And this is where it gets reconciled. We have positional sanctification, what we are in Christ. And we have practical, day-to-day living sanctification. Pursuing practical sanctification and in our daily lives will give proof of our positional sanctification. Because if you are a Christian, if you have been saved by God's grace, He has given you His holiness, His sanctification. And if He has done that, then your life will manifest that. This is not a sanctification we fabricate on our own. Because the Apostle Paul also said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Amen? How many of you, after you were saved, you find yourself thinking negative thoughts? Come on, don't lie now. We all do, right? Oh, this, the old nature is still there. And somebody said the two natures are like two dogs. The dog that you feed is the one that's going to win. So make sure you feed the right dog. Amen? Right. Now, without positional sanctification, one cannot see God. This is not talking about the practical sanctification, but in a way it is indirectly. It's talking about our positional sanctification, but if that sanctification, that positional one, truly exists in you, it will manifest itself in your day-to-day life in the uh, personal, practical sanctification. Now, the true believer has already been positionally sanctified, as I said. Now he proves it practically in day-to-day living, in peace with other people, and in personal separation from the world. Do not try to identify with the world. We are told not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, are not of the Father, but they are of the world. And the world passes, and it's habits. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So if you are a true believer, imitate the Lord Jesus. Imitate the believers in the Bible. They are good points. Don't imitate the world. The writer encourages his readers, these believers, Jewish believers, to depend on the grace of God, urging them to look by faith in three directions. First, you have to look back. Look at chapter 12 there, our our text. Look at verse 15. We look back. It says, looking carefully. How are we to look? Carefully. If you don't look carefully where you're going, you're going to stumble. And you may fall. Now it says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. Who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know... That afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sowed it diligently with tears. The writer exhorts them to look back, okay, to look back 
to a bad example. Esau, that's a bad example. But before speaking about him directly, he warns them of some dangers they need to be aware of. He begins by saying, looking carefully, in Greek, it is one word only. And the word that is used in the Greek is the word we get episcopal from. Episcopevo means I oversee. Okay? It means seen as having constant spiritual oversight by each person over his own life and attitudes. Whose life are we to oversee first? Did anybody understand the question? Whose life are we to oversee first? Our. You don't need to oversee God. God knows what he's doing. We need to oversee our lives. We need to make sure that we are all right before we judge anybody else, before we check somebody else's life. Do you notice one thing? Most people in this world are nosy. All right? They are nosy. And they look at a fault of yours and blab it everywhere. Not only are they nosy, but they are blabbermouths. The Lord said, take the log out of your eye before you take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So the first thing we must do oversee is our own attitudes, our own lives. Amen? Be occupied taking care of your life. You're not responsible for somebody else's. They're responsible for their lives. You are responsible for your life before God. Because the day of judgment, in the day of judgment, you're going to have to give God an account of your life, not somebody else's. So make sure you're okay. So the day you have to give an account to the Lord, your list is as short as could be. There is a danger of backsliding if these believers fail to keep on the lookout as to their spiritual condition. If you don't look out after your spiritual condition, you're in danger of backsliding. Don't be careless in your Christian life because if you take your eyes off the Lord like Peter did, you're going to begin to sink. It's very easy to sink. What is easy? Easier. Is it easier to go down or go up? Down. The only thing that goes up is inflation. Right? Yeah. Once it goes up, it's very hard for it to come down. Somebody said the other day, go to such and such a gas station and you have a, 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 a member card, you save three cents on the gallon of gas. And somebody else put on Facebook and said, cast the right vote in November and you'll save $3 on the gas. You didn't get the joke, did you? Now, there is a danger of backsliding if the readers fail to keep on the lookout as to their spiritual condition. This backsliding is in three stages. And each one begins with the word lest. Lest. What is a synonym for lest? You have it in the tip of your tongue, but you can't. I'll give you a synonym for lest. Unless. Okay? It requires diligence to run the race successfully and carefully 
lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. This means moral separation. Doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It means moral separation. This is when God's children fail to appropriate grace when something negative enters their lives. Many times believers stumble spiritually because they fail to appropriate God's grace which is available to all of them. And this is, this, there's no progress when this happens. You ever see Christians that are stuck in the same place for years and years and years? They're stuck and go nowhere. Why? Because they do not work out their salvation because they do not appropriate the grace of God in their own lives. So they continue spinning their wheels in the same place without touching ground. There's no progress when that happens. That's the first stage. The second stage is lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and, and by this many become defiled. Defiled means contaminated. The root and the springing up show the beginning and the end result of bitterness. When a believer does not appropriate the grace of God during trials and suffering, it leads to bitterness. Has anybody ever had anybody do something wrong to you? Have you? Do you have people that do, did something wrong to you? No? Oh, what a holy congregation I have here. Nobody has had any problems. Huh? Seems like we're all glorified already, right? I'm preaching, you know, for naught over here. I should go home and just watch TV. Huh? We all have always had somebody, we all have had sometime in our lives, somebody who did something wrong to us. How did you react to that? I didn't. You must be more spiritual than me. I wanted to use the key word, kill. Because that's a natural reaction. We don't, nobody in here, if you tell me that you like somebody doing something wrong to you, you're crazy. Bellevue is calling you. Nobody likes when somebody does something wrong to him or her. We don't like that. How many of you like trials and tribulation, adversity, pain, sickness, gossip? Now, some of us like to gossip about somebody else, but we don't like it when somebody else gossips about us. Right? Mm. The apostle who's writing this epistle is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 18. And this is pictured as a quick process. You know how quickly bitterness springs up? It's like a bad weed. It's like poison, like venom. Springs up like that. Before you know it, it's there. Okay? It's a quick process which shows how quickly bitterness can spread and cause trouble and by this, many become defiled. Be careful, because when we do the, right, the wrong thing, when we become bitter, we're not the only ones that are poisoned. We poison others. 
Okay? This is like a plague which spreads quickly and contaminates many people. A bitter person murmurs against other people. And the poison spreads like venom. Eventually setting people against one another. Coming to the point of causing division and even splitting churches. I just read in a book, I was reading a book by Chuck Swindoll. He says that in a church, some people didn't like what the pastor did. And they went to his home and they destroyed property of his. Members of the church. Well, don't ever come to my house to do cause, cause problems with me. So I call the police so fast, you'll, you'll, you'll make your head spin. What kind of Christians are those? Well, you'll be surprised what goes on in churches. Thank God for your church every day. We're not perfect, that's for sure. You know why we're not perfect? Because you're here. True. How many people does it take to make a church imperfect? One. And here we got many, including me. See? The first stage that we talked about before, falling of the, of the grace of God, affects only one person. This second stage affects other people. The Greek word for trouble is to bother or to annoy. Always remember this. Sin defiles. Sin contaminates. Sin spreads. In verse 16, we have the third stage. And the third stage is, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau. Who was Esau? Nobody knows who Esau was. Who was he? Who? Whose brother? Jacob's brother? You're right. Just wanted to see if you were awake. But this is an English service. We speak English here. No habla espanol. Esau was Jacob's brother. He was the firstborn. They were twins. But the Lord had told Isaac, Esau is not the son of promise. Jacob is the son of promise. See, God sees things before they happen. He knew how Esau was going to be. And sure enough, Esau was a profane person. And I'll explain to you what that is. Esau fell short of the grace of God. He was not a fornicator, but he was a profane person. And his story we find in the book of Genesis, chapters 25 and 27. It means a profane person is one who tramples upon spiritual matters. The person that doesn't care about spiritual matters, who mocks at God, who mocks at his word, who smirks when the word of God is being preached, that's a profane person. A person who doesn't have any value, any use for spiritual matters. All they care about is their physical life down here. Money, things, materialism, sin. That's a profane person. A person without God. Okay? And that's what Esau was. A common person. 
one who lives for the things of the world and not for God. Esau is the example of one who had God's blessing within reach because of his birthright. He had the birthright. He had the inheritance. He had it all, but failed to take hold of them. He despised his birthright and sold it to Jacob for a bowl of soup, a bowl of lentils. He really had a sense of values, didn't he? And he missed, by doing that, he missed the blessing. For the blessing went to Jacob. And guess what? The birthright also went to Jacob. So what did Esau do? The fact that he sold his birthright for the morsel of food shows how little he thought of God's blessings. He didn't care. Now these Jewish believers could do the same thing. Throw away their blessings available to them and go back to their religious practices in the temple. Oh, they wanted to have religion, but not a relationship with God. We are not exempt either from that, from this danger. Many believers have followed Esau's example. And this, of course, has to do with blessing, not salvation. Verse 17 tells us that later Esau tried to get Isaac, his father, <clears throat> to change his mind, but it was too late. Have you, how, how, many, how many of you have been to Niagara Falls? The Niagara River is navigable. You can go on it by boat, but up to a point. There is a danger sign there that says, do not go beyond this point because this is the point of no return. There is no boat, no motor strong enough to go against the current after a certain point. If you pass that point, you're going to go off the waterfall and kill yourself. Some Christians go beyond the point of no return. And many times we do not lose our salvation, but we, we, we lose the blessings we could have had. Let me ask you, you're a, you're a believer, right? Let's say you have an accident and you lose your arm. Because you're a believer, does that mean that your arm is going to grow back? No. You lost your arm, that's it. Or you're a believer and you have an illegitimate relationship outside of marriage and you have a child. Will that child disappear because you're a believer? No. You're going to have that for the rest of your life. There are some things that are beyond the point of return. So make sure that you walk as far away from the precipice as you can possibly can. As far away from the world as you can possibly walk. Walk close to Jesus. Like the old song used to say, I want Jesus to walk with me. Or I, I would change that and say, I want to walk with Jesus. Hmm? So we see here, that later, Esau tried to get his father Isaac to change his mind, but it was too late. Because it says, he was rejected. Esau was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sowed it diligently with tears. He cried, he wept, but there was nothing he could do. Esau, uh, I mean, Isaac said, I bless your brother. He has the birthright. He has the blessing. You blew it.
Even his tears availed nothing. His decision to sell his birthright was a once-for-all decision, and it was irrevocable. In other words, it could not be changed. It is important to add that he sold, not only sold his, his birthright, he despised it. And that was the problem. He didn't care about it in the least. And this is why he's called a profane person. Later, Esau wanted to inherit the blessing. He lost the birthright, but what about the blessing? He realized what it involved, both physical and spiritual blessings. And I bet you he only cared about the physical, not the spiritual ones. He wanted the blessing without repentance. For he found no place for repentance, it says. All was in vain. Isaac would not change his mind. It was done. Esau is a tragic example of one who sins willfully. That sin not allowing a second chance. The writer presses the case of Esau as a warning to the believers who were tempted to turn from Christ. The people he's writing to right now. Turn from Christ to go back to rabbinical Judaism. In their case, it also would have been a a once for all irrevocable decision by doing that. This meant they would uh, be cut off from the place of blessing. Losing the rewards in this life and in the age to come. The exhortation to us is this. Don't forfeit future rewards for present day well-being and security. So many people are just talking about the things of this world, their house, their car, their boat, their job, their this, their that. They never, even people who call themselves Christians, I never hear them talking about spiritual matters. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is your conversation about? Be careful of reaching a point of no return. What could rob us of God's blessings and rewards? Lack of spiritual diligence, bitterness against God and others, sexual immorality, living for the world and the flesh, and a whole bunch of other things. Someone has said that God's grace does not fail, but we can fail to depend on God's grace. Esau is a warning to us not to live for worldly things, but be, to be interested in the things of God. So we were told to look back. Now we're told to look up. Verse 18 of chapter 12. Follow with me. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burn with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, 
who are registered in heaven to God the judge of all to the spirit of just men made perfect to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel we have we have to look up to where to the glory of heaven not Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion. New blood, new covenant. Okay? These believers are now exhorted to look up to the heavenly city with the eyes of faith. These Jewish believers are reminded of what occurred in the past when the nation of Israel was given the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. And this is a contrast here that is drawn for them to describe their position as believers. First, they are told where they are not. And, they, and then, where they are. First of all, it says in verse 18, For you have not come. And in verse 22, it says, But you have come. The writer contrasts here Mount Sinai, where the law was given, with the heavenly Mount Zion, and the blessings of grace and privileges. First of all, in verse 18, he says, For you have not come, the readers have not come to a place of terror. Mount Sinai was a place of terror. Okay? The writer reminds them of the solemnity and terror involved in the going, in the giving of the law of Moses at Mount Sinai. They have not come to a mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire. This is taken from Exodus and to blackness and darkness and tempest. They have not heard the sound of it, the trumpet and the voice of words, that is the word of God. These words were such that the Israelites trembled and begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. They wanted Moses to tell them, not God directly. They were terrified. Anybody would be. The writer is describing the solemnity and even the terror that were involved in the giving of the law, the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, to return and to go back to the law was to go back to a place of terror. And this is what the Apostle Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, okay, when he talks about the law being a place of terror. He says that going back to the law is returning to a ministry of death and condemnation. The writer of Hebrews reminds them that Mount Sinai was untouchable. Any, any beast or any man touched Mount Sinai, they were to be killed. Even Moses was terrified and trembled. The point is that if these believers go back to Judaism, they are going back to a place of terror. For, for the law brings terror. Death and condemnation. Now, in verse 22, we see a sharp contrast from verse 18. In contrast with Mount Sinai, we have, we have Mount Zion. Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. That's where the southern part of the city is built on Mount Zion. Mount, Mount, Mount Sinai represents the old covenant of law. Mount Zion represents the new covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. But you have come, it says, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This heavenly city is God's Mount Zion. 
the city of the patriarchs, and the city they looked, they looked for, and where all believers are destined to go. The Lord says, remember what the Lord said the last night he was with his own? He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwellings. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I shall return and I will receive you unto myself. That's what he's talking about. The heavenly Jerusalem. Okay? And this is the city John also describes in more detail in Revelation 21 and 22. The last chapters of the Bible. It is called Mount Zion in heaven. The city of the living God. God dwells there and the heavenly Jerusalem. The writer then proceeds to describe the dwellers who lives there, okay, that make up the population of the city. First, it has an innumerable company of angels, myriads upon myriads of angels live there. They cannot be numbered. There's so many. Moses mentions them also in his final blessing on Israel in Deuteronomy 33. They are mentioned in Daniel as well. So the first dwellers of that city are the innumerable host of angels. Secondly, the general assembly and church of the firstborn in verse 23. He may refer to the church as a whole or to Jewish believers of the church. But we know that the church as a whole, both Jews and Gentiles, will eventually dwell in the new Jerusalem. Paul makes it clear that all believers have their citizenship in heaven in Philippians 3.20. The names of all believers are registered in heaven. Remember when the Lord sent the apostles out and they came back rejoicing, said, even the demons are subjected to us. And what did the Lord say to them? Do not rejoice that the demons are subjected to you. Rather rejoice that your names are written in the book of life in heaven. Let me ask you a question. Is your name written on the book of life? Ask yourself that question. Is my name written on the book of life? If the answer is no or I don't know, then you better make sure today before you leave. Thirdly, God, the judge of all, is there. Not only the angels, not only the church, but God is there. And this speaks of God the Father, who is the judge of all in heaven. Fourthly, the spirits of just men made perfect are there. This refers to the Old Testament saints. The writer refers to them as spirits because they are not yet united with their bodies, giving an indication that the resurrection of Old Testament saints has not yet taken place. They are called just or righteous because they were saved when they believed in their lifetime and made perfect at least, at, at last, I should say, when Jesus died on the cross. Only Jesus' sacrifice can make a sinner perfect once for all. Salvation is not something we do, but something done to us by the Lord. Then fifthly, verse 24, we see Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the one who, who shed his blood for us. His home is the heavenly city. He mediated the new covenant. 
and he is there as Lord and Savior forever and ever. In referring to the new covenant, the writer uses no, not new in the sense of quality or nature, as it usually appears throughout Scripture. He uses a different Greek word, which means new in point of time. The new covenant was new in point of time because Jesus had just died on the cross and had ascended to heaven. It is a fresh covenant. And then the last one, sixthly, we have the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. We saw in chapter 11, verse 4, the previous chapter, Abel is still speaking. And here we read that Christ's blood speaks better things than that of Abel. The new covenant was ratified by better blood, the blood of Jesus. Earlier we saw that Jesus brought his blood into the Holy of Holies in the heavenly tabernacle on the mercy seat. His blood speaks better things than that of Abel because Abel's blood cried from the earth, whereas Jesus' blood speaks from heaven. Abel's blood cried for justice because his brother slew him. But Jesus' blood gives mercy and salvation to sinners and makes them just, makes them righteous. Abel's blood made Cain feel guilty and ended up in despair. But Jesus' blood frees us from sin and guilt and opens the door into God's presence. It is by his blood that we can enter heaven. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. Because it's his blood, nobody else's. In view of all this, these Jewish believers must seriously consider not going back to the old system lest they lose the blessings of this life and suffer terror in this life especially the terror of physical judgment which was about to fall on the nation of Israel with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple they needed to remember that the patriarchs and Moses as well as the prophets mentioned in chapter 11 endured by faith and they all looked to the city God was preparing for them. We must remember this as well and know that the only way to lay hold of God's grace is to look ahead by faith, look upwards to the wonderful future he has prepared for us. And then lastly, we see looking not only back, looking up, but now looking ahead. Looking ahead to what? To an unshakable kingdom. I've lived long enough to remember nations that did not exist now exist. And I remember nations that existed, now they don't exist. When I was born, my country was a kingdom. Now it's a mess. As long as good King Paul was king in Greece, everything was stable. Now it's a mess. I remember a nation name called Czechoslovakia. 1993 disappeared. Now it's two nations, the Czech Republic and Slovakia. I remember a nation called Yugoslavia, bordering my country from the north. That nation disappeared, it blew up 
into seven republics. I remember a nation called the Soviet Union. It was the largest nation in the world. It doesn't exist anymore. At least it's not called that. It has a different name, but we in Greek, we have a saying that says, little Emmanuel changed his clothes and put him inside out. You know what that means, right? We say in English, same horse of another color. And when I learned geography, I knew the countries of Europe and their capitals. I mean, the countries of Africa and their capitals. I had to relearn that. Because now nations emerged in the early, late 50s, early 60s that I didn't exist when I went to school. Boy, I feel old. What am I trying to say? Kingdoms, countries come and go. Today they are, tomorrow they are not. It's the same thing all the time. But with the Lord, his kingdom is forever. And that's the kingdom that we are waiting for. Let's uh, look at verse 25. Bear with me. We're almost done with this long section here. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the, the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We talk, here we're talking about, we're looking ahead to an unshakable kingdom. In view of the exhortation given in the last section that we just read, the writer now warns his readers once more. In verse 25, he first tells them, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. That is, beware lest you do that. The language is stronger in the Greek. It is emphatic, pointing to their obligation, the obligation of all believers to listen in view of what he just finished telling them. Refuse or reject is the same as beg. It has the idea of rejection. The writer is reminding the believers of the past about their forefathers, their conduct when they rejected him who spoke on earth, using the present tense point to the fact that he's speaking even now, the time that the epistle was written. God is speaking to us today through his word and his providential workings in the world. We had better listen. The writer is drawing a, co a contrast between heaven and earth. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. God spoke on earth through Moses. 
Now he speaks from heaven through his son. If his son is greater than Moses, then those who refuse to listen to him now are guilty of a greater sin than their forefathers at Mount Sinai. Again, he's speaking here about the loss of blessings and physical death, not about the loss of salvation. In verse 26, we are, they are reminded that God shook things at Sinai, and those who refused to hear were judged. This shaking was symbolic of the future final shaking of the heavens and the earth. The historic shaking took place at Mount Sinai. And God today is shaking things, to be sure. But there will be a future shaking, according to the prophet Haggai, the final shaking. It would take place before the second coming of Christ. It consists of the judgment during the great tribulation before the establishment of the messianic kingdom. When the Lord returns to take up his throne and fill the temple with his glory, the time is near. We don't know how close, but it's near. And the closer it draws, the more shakings shall take place. These believers were about to witness a great shaking themselves. It came just a couple of years after the epistle was written. It came when the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel were destroyed in the year 70 A.D. The Romans came, destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and scattered the Jewish nation throughout the world, slaughtering thousands upon thousands of them. One more reason they needed to listen to him who now speaks from heaven in grace. One day he will speak with shaking in judgment to bring this order to an end. What order? The world system as it is now. Which, by the way, this world system, the time of the Gentiles, the Bible calls, if you notice, and if you have eyes to see, because some people look and they can't see, things are going from bad to worse. Now, should we stop praying and give up? No. We need to continue praying. Okay? But the Lord one day is going to bring this whole system to an end. In verse 27, we read, Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made. Meaning that final shaking before Christ's return will introduce a final, better, unshakable order. He quotes from Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, yet once more to say the shakable things are temporary. Everything you see in this world is temporary. The things that you see are temporary. The things you do not see are eternal. And after all, the Bible tells us that the things that we see were made from things that we do not see. But people don't believe in the things they cannot see. But yet those things that they cannot see, are they eternal things? Because you can see it, touch it, feel it, taste it, smell it. Does it mean that it's forever? No. No. Your body is not forever. Your soul is. Can you see your soul? No. Okay, but your soul is eternal. Your body, though you can touch it and feel it and see it, is temporary. Okay? So always keep that in mind. Since the earth was and will be shaking, shaken, 
It shows that it is temporary and all things in it. They will be removed in order that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Because these things are eternal. This whole world system is shakable. And one day it will be removed. That is destroyed. Christ's kingdom is unshakable. But it is eternal. And that is what all believers should be waiting for. But it will give us a fit place to live forever. The point here for the uh, recipients of this letter is that to go back to Judaism, to rabbinical Judaism, is to go back to something that is about to be destroyed, which indeed was in the year 70 AD, just a couple of years after the epistle was written. A couple of years after this whole exhortation is given. Judgment fell. And Jude the rabbinical Judaism, I mean, the Judaism as, as, as known as uh, it was known back then, disappeared, was destroyed, okay? The point for us is that we must keep looking ahead and not be tempted to go back to the world and the things of the world. Listen to me. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. For the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life are not of the Father, but they are of the world. And the world passes Temporary, right? And it's lusts. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Then in verse 28, we have the conclusion of the matter. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with, a reverence, with reverence and godly fear. As we live in this shaking, uncertain world, we must listen to God speak and we must obey Him, living by His grace, keeping on having grace day by day in order to be able to serve Him with reverence and godly fear. As the world is scared and afraid. <laughs> Did you ever see anything like this in your days? With all this whole pandemonium that we had since 2020, people call it pandemic, I call it pandemonium. Everybody's running around like a scared cat. Who? COVID? Who? Oh, shut up and sit down. Are you saved or not? If you're saved and you die and are going to heaven, what are you scared of? You know why the world that doesn't know Christ is scared? Because they know. That if they die, where they're going, they don't want to face the judge. That's why they're scared. We should not be scared. Christians should give an example of courage. But if I get sick with COVID, you'll recover. Just like you get sick with the flu. Here we have a whole row, a whole family, right? Is that you? Uh, um, Lisette? Your whole family? Everybody was sick with COVID? Yeah? Are you dead? You're here, right? Made it through. You made it through? How many times were you sick with COVID? Twice. Are you here today? You're not glorified, right? You didn't go to heaven yet. What are you afraid of? I'm sick and tired of masks and this and COVID and vaccines. Leave me alone. Yeah, 
Yeah, the monkey, that's for those who believe in evolution, not for me. Because my forefathers were all men. Human, not monkeys. My madrina, mona será tu madrina. We must have a sense of humor too, right? Heaven help us the day we lose it. Some people are pickled. They're not preserved, they're pickled. In vinegar. Blech. They're so acidic. Can't make a joke, they don't laugh. Oh, get over it. Get a life. Amen? Live. I order you to live. Stop being afraid. All the world is scared and afraid. But you mustn't be. You be loyal to Christ and be confident. Grace must be appropriated because we are told next that the alternative is divine judgment. The writer quotes from Deuteronomy 4.24 when he says, For our God is a consuming fire. The point out, this points out the fact that though God is a God of grace, God is a God of love, God is a God of holiness, He is also a God of judgment for those who refuse His grace. That's a warning of discipline to the believer. So let us walk by grace. Let us run the race by grace. Let us look unto Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. That's how this chapter started. Continue trusting the Lord on a daily basis. Don't imitate the world. Don't be afraid like the world is. Stand courageously. Be free. The Lord Jesus Christ has made us free. Let us walk as free men and women, not like slaves. Amen? We thank you for listening to this message and pray that the Word of God spoke to your heart. To listen to previous sermons, please visit us at www.cbttbc.com or anchor.fm forward slash cbt hyphen sermons.